Hey, I hope you're having a great day. We've been enjoying this series now for, for a number of weeks. So, you know, if we, and if I ask the question, why, why are we spending this time on a family series? Probably some people will say, well, it's a felt need. You know, everybody's dealing with it. They're dealing with the real and not the ideal. And, and that's definitely part of it. But there's something more, I think, more than just a felt need. It's about obedience to God, isn't it? Are we going to do what God has told us to do or not with our families and in our marriages? We want to do what's right because it's the right thing. And we know, for example, that the Bible tells us that, that God hates divorce. And, and, we, and, and we look at marriages that are going through that, and we can see why, even from a human perspective, because typically there's so much anger and hurt and pain and, and the bitterness that can so easily set in. But even beyond that, our, our marriages are supposed to be a reflection of who God is and what he's like. And that's why husbands and wives are told about their roles in the context of the relationship of Christ in the church. So when we don't do marriage right, what's happening is we're distorting the image of who God is. And that's a big deal. And, and so we're continuing this series because we want to honor God and our families and do what's right because... That's what he'd ask us to do. And today we're, we're going to talk about the second biggest decision you'll ever make in your life. Second biggest. The biggest decision is obviously about whether you'll become a follower of Jesus Christ or not. And we hope you, you'll take, if you haven't taken that step, that you'll take it. It's the most important, the biggest decision of your life, that you simply come to him by faith alone. And, and, and his sacrifice in our place on the cross to pay the penalty for our sin. If you'll ever want to talk about that, we'd be glad to do that. Just call anytime and we'll talk about that biggest decision you can make in life. But the second biggest decision has to do with deciding who you're going to marry. And if you're thinking, well, great, I'm already married. I can just sort of zone out here, maybe take a little nap. I want to encourage you not to do that because we're going to be talking about some things that are important for all of us. Because even if we're not single, we all have influence in the lives of people who are, and sometimes they need encouragement, sometimes they need direction. If you're a parent, if you're a grandparent, if you're an aunt or uncle, or if you have single friends, there are times when they need to hear from you, and they need to hear what's right. So I'd encourage you to hang in there. Let's just start with some groundwork and just talk a little bit about some different situations you may find yourself in. Obviously, if you're already married, you're not looking for someone, right? <laughs> so I'll make sure. Yeah. If you're married, but you're thinking that someone else besides your spouse, you're, you're spending your time thinking about someone else besides your spouse, you know, it's, it's time to take some action. If you're thinking, you know, she really gets me, I like spending time with her, or he really listens to me, my husband won't listen like that. That's just playing with fire. The best thing you can do at that situation is run, okay? Run as fast as you can and as far as you can from that person and from that situation and go home and do what God has called you to do as a husband or a wife. And to those of you who find yourself in a situation where you're married, and, but uh, you're married to, a, to an unbeliever, I, I want to try to encourage you this morning. It's, I know it's not easy. And I know that you're praying hard for them. You want, them to, you want to see them more than anything in life. You want to see them come to Christ. 
let me encourage you, don't bail. Don't bail. The, the Bible talks about in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul is urging uh, you to stay committed in that situation to your marriage. Just listen to the words. He says, but to the rest I say, not the Lord, that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he must not divorce her. And a woman who has an unbelieving husband and he consents to live with her, she must not send her husband away. For the unbelieving husband is sanctified through his wife and the unbelieving wife is sanctified through her believing husband. For otherwise your children are unclean, but now they are holy. So there's big news here. Here's the deal. You may not always feel like you're making a difference and there may be times when you're feeling really discouraged, but you, you are making a difference. You're, if you're living for Jesus in that home, you are having an impact in their lives. It may take time, it may be slow, it may take a lot of effort, but you are having an impact. So don't bail. And secondly, keep believing. Keep believing that your spouse's heart can be influenced for Christ when they see you living for him. That doesn't mean you've got to live a perfect life before them. It just means that you're, you're recognizing the importance and you're doing what you can to, to live out what you say you believe. Peter talked about the, the, the impact a wife can have on a husband. In 1 Peter 3, he said, in the same way, you wives... Be submissive to your own husband so that even if any of them are disobedient to the word, they're not believers, they may be won without a word by the behavior of their wives as they observe your chaste and respectful behavior. That's, that's great stuff. You've got an awesome opportunity to hopefully reach them for Christ just by the way you live. It's amazing. So take that opportunity. Do, do not bail. Keep believing if you're in that situation where you're married to an unbeliever. And since we're talking about finding the right person to marry, let me say something to those of you who are single, and as far as you know right now, there's no one exactly on the horizon. You know, you're not seeing Mr. or Mrs. Wright out there anywhere. According to the Bible, from 1 Corinthians 7, there are some of you, it's probably a minority of you, but there are some of those who are single who've been given the ability to stay single. And they can be used to do great things to God. In fact, the Bible talks about people who have that ability as having undistracted devotion to God. That's pretty cool. Undistracted devotion to God. They can be used to do great things for him. So if you've been given this gift, great. You've got the opportunity to do much for him. I want to encourage you, please, don't fill your life with other things. Let, take this opportunity. Let God use you where you're at. And, and don't feel that pressure from anybody or any direction to go find somebody. Don't have to. You've got an opportunity ahead of you. Use it. And then, of course, just because you don't see someone as a possibility right now doesn't mean that God's not going to do something in the near future with you. So if you're thinking, you know, I, I'm single, but I don't believe I've been given that ability, my encouragement is don't give up. Part of the excitement, no matter what we're doing in life, part of the excitement of being a Christian is seeing how God provides in ways we weren't expecting. And since we know not everyone has that gift, we know there are some of you that God's going to provide for in this area in some very special ways. So keep trusting him. And when he does provide, when that person seems to be there, how do you know? How do you know who you're supposed to marry? What is it that you should look for? Parents, how do you know who's right for your son or daughter? 
And, and no doubt there's a bunch of significant factors that need to be considered, plenty of stuff that may come into play, you know, things like compatible backgrounds and age and education, temperament, interests, work ethic, humor, how you squeeze the toothpaste, you know. All that stuff can be very important. And you wanna, you wanna think through all that stuff. You wanna make sure you, know, you, you do this carefully, but there is one factor that is by far the most important. I don't know how it could be stated more strongly than what's given to us in 2 Corinthians six fourteen, a passage that isn't exclusively about marriage, but marriage is absolutely a part of what's being talked about there, where it says, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness, or what fellowship has light with darkness? Do not be bound together. And the verb tense there in the Greek it would tell us, stop doing this. So it, which would tell us that this was something that was way too common in the church at Corinth. That they were getting bound together with unbelievers. And, I, and I've got to say, it's, it's probably way too common today. Too many find out too late all the ramifications of disobeying God in this area. And it's not easy, and it's not good. You, do you remember how the old King James translated this? Do not be unequally yoked. That's actually a great translation. Well, I'm, I'm afraid what happens in our modern translations, like New American Standard, which I enjoy and I think is a great translation, but right here, I think the King James beats them all. Do not be unequal. Because when we say do not be bound, we miss the unequal part. And there's definitely an unequal part to what he's talking about here. Don't be unequally yoked. He's saying, the idea is, hey, don't be mismated by yoking up with someone who isn't a believer. Remember a month or two ago, Pastor Kevin was talking about the yoke that Jesus talked about in Matthew 11, and he said, take my yoke upon you. And, and Kevin talked about how that was a single yoke. This is different. This is the double yoke. This is uh, where you put the, you know, the animals together to increase the pulling power. Of course, it's not going to work if these animals are two different kinds of animals in the same yoke. I think Paul's probably thinking about Deuteronomy 22.10 when he, he says that's where it says, you shall not plow with an ox and a donkey together. That's not going to work. It looks something like this. You know, this, hopefully, yeah, there. <laughs> I, I talk about an ox and a donkey, then I look up and it's still me. And I think, oh, that's not, <laughs> not sure what that means. This, ox, this, obviously, this isn't going to work. It wouldn't work for at least a couple of reasons. They're different species. They're, the ox is bigger, it's stronger. They, they, they have different temperaments, they have different speeds. I mean, look at them. Neither of them is going to be happy in this relationship. It's going to be painful. It's going to be uncomfortable. They're also different spiritually. And I know that sounds weird. But the Old Testament law tells us the ox was considered clean while the donkey was unclean. And that, that was a big deal. This wasn't supposed to be, there wasn't supposed to be any mixing of what was clean and unclean. So Paul's saying here, hey, there's, a, there's a difference here spiritually. A believer and an unbeliever, there's something significantly different. In, in Ephesians 5, 7, he uses a similar phrase when he says, do not be partakers with them. To put it more plainly, when he's giving input on whether a widow should remarry, 
In 1 Corinthians 7, he says, a wife is bound as long as her husband lives, but if her husband is dead, she is free to be married to whom she wishes only in the Lord. So there's a restriction there. She's free to remarry, but there's a restriction only in the Lord. And he goes on here to give some reasons for the restriction. Verse 14 again, do not be bound together with unbelievers. For what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what harmony is Christ with Belial? Or what is a believer in common with an unbeliever? Or what agreement has the temple of God with idols? For we are the temple of the living God. Just as God said, I will dwell in them and walk among them, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. It's like Paul is thinking, he's just saying, hey, just in case people start throwing out some, 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 some questions here, he's going to deal with his own way of doing it by throwing out some questions. In case somebody's saying, well, you know, the guy... A girl I'm dating, yeah, yeah. I guess they're, they're not really a Christian, but man, they, they're really nice. They're really nice people. And, and I'm not, you know, it's, you know I'm, I, I love them. Paul's given five questions that are going to point out the contrast between those who are Christians and those who aren't. And by the way, if you ever notice, when a believer is trying to justify their relationship with a non-believer, typically what you hear about it is how compatible they are. And Paul's going to flip that here and focuses on the incompatibility. You know, there are, there are certain things in life that just don't go together, right? You don't put the engine of a Fiesta in a Ferrari, right? Doesn't work. You're not going to do that. Pickles and ice cream. Don't go together. Maybe if you're expecting a baby, maybe, but other than that, no. There are certain things that are definitely not meant to be together. Aluminum foil and microwaves. You know, my suggestion is don't try it. Seems like honesty and politics don't go together, right? Paul's asking these questions about things that don't go together. And he says, hey, for what partnership have righteousness and lawlessness? They just don't go together. They're totally different standards. They're all about different ways of living. Righteousness, the standard of God, or lawlessness, no standard. Oh, completely mind-driven by human beings. What we want, what we like. Or what fellowship can light have with darkness? Light and darkness, what do they have in common? Nothing. What harmony is there between Christ and Belial? The word harmony actually is in the Greek is, is the word we get our word symphony from. How do Christ and Belial, what do they have in sympathy, in symphony together? So, and Belial is a word that means worthless, but it was sometimes used of Satan, a name for Satan. So he's asking the question, hey, what do Christ and Satan have in common? What do they share? How do they harmonize? How did Christ and Satan harmonize? They don't, do they? There's no, there's no connection there. They don't go together. What does a believer have in common with an unbeliever? What do they share together? He's talking about the, what part of a whole do they share? It's like, a, are they eating from the same pie? No, they're not. One lives for the creator, the other lives for the creation. What agreement is there between the temple of God and idols? 
The temple of God and idols, are you kidding me? The temple of God, where, where God was present, the real God, not some false deity carved out of stone or wood. In one of the most awful passages of the Old Testament, 2 Kings 21, King Manasseh brings idols into the temple of God. It's disastrous. It brings disaster on all of Jerusalem. It's terrible. What the Bible is pointing out here is that there is there are huge contrasts between Christians and non-Christians, but it's even more than that. The Bible says there are inherent and intrinsic contradictions. And you can go back into the Old Testament and see how God's people weren't supposed to be led astray by unholy relationships. And when they were, it always led to disastrous results. I'm going to go back. I'm just going to read something. So just hang in there with me, okay? I'm just going to read some passages. Ephesians 34, verse, Exodus 34, verse 12. Watch yourself that, no, that you make no covenant with the inhabitants of the land into which you are going, or it will become a snare in your midst. And you might take some of his daughters for your sons, and his daughters might play the harlot with their gods, and cause your sons also to play the harlot with their gods. Deuteronomy 7, verse 3, furthermore, you shall not intermarry with them. You shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor shall you take their daughters for your sons, for they will turn your sons away from following me to serve other gods. Then the anger of the Lord will be kindled against you, and he will quickly destroy you. 1 Kings 11, now King Solomon loved many foreign women along with the daughter of Pharaoh, Moabite, Ammonite, Edomite, Sidonian, and Hittite women. From the nations concerning which the Lord had said to the sons of Israel, you shall not associate with them, nor shall they associate with you, for they will surely turn your heart away after their gods. Solomon held fast to these in love. He had 700 wives, princesses, and 300 concubines, and his wives turned his heart away. For, from Sol for when Solomon was old, his wives turned his heart away after other gods, and his heart was not wholly devoted to the Lord his God as the heart of David his father had been. Ezra 9, verse 2, For they had taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has intermingled with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. When I heard about this matter, I tore my garment and my robe and pulled some of the hair from my head and my beard and sat down appalled. Nehemiah 13, 23, in those days I also saw that the Jews had married women from Ashdod, Ammon, and Moab. As for their children, half spoken the language of Ashdod, and none of them was able to speak the language of Judah, but the language of his own people. So I contended with them and cursed them and struck some of them and pulled out their hair and made them swear by God, you shall not give your daughters to their sons, nor take of their daughters for your sons or for yourselves. And Malachi 2.11, Judah has dealt treacherously and an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign God. You see it over and over and over again. See, the Bible is clear that God has allowed us incredible freedom in our choice of who we marry, but he has also drawn a line that we should never cross. Incredible freedom. All those other factors that we talked about earlier, you get to consider those and choose. It reminds me of Adam in the Garden of Eden. Remember, God says, hey, Adam, all these trees that are out here, you can eat of any of them. You got the freedom to pick. 
There's one, one tree, though, one tree that you're not to eat of. Oh, guess which one Adam wants? Freedom to eat from anything. We have the freedom. God says, hey, do, do, be wise, but you have the freedom to pick. There's one line that you are not to cross if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, and that is the line of not marrying an unbeliever. Listen to the stunning statement in the last part of verse 16. For we are the temple of the living God. Hey, God, the temple of God and idols have nothing to do with each other. Then he points to us and says, guess what? We're the temple of the living God. We're the temple. This is where he's living now. Don't mix things. There's a responsibility that goes with that. This incredible uh, uh, privilege of having God himself reside in us. But there's a responsibility that goes with that. And because of that responsibility, we're to live differently. So when we come to verse 17, we're faced with a tough task of obeying God's word and not following our feelings. Yeah, that's where the rub comes in, isn't it? Because a person might know what God says, but their emotions get all entangled with this person. They think they're a very nice person. They think they're in love with them because they've been hanging out with them for some time. And their feelings begin to trump facts and faith. But listen to verse 17. Therefore, come out from their midst and be separate, says the Lord, and do not touch what is unclean, and I will welcome you. Touch no unclean thing, be separate. Separate. Separation is, is first and foremost us simply when we recognize that we are separated unto God. And because we belong to him, we can't attach ourselves to anyone for any reason that will pull us away from him. What this means is if you are a born-again Christian and you are dating someone who's not, even if you're not planning on marrying them, and you're thinking, boy, I'm, I'm safe because I'm not planning on, you're on dangerous ground. It, you just might give your heart away. It happens, doesn't it? People unintentionally give their heart away and end up in a mismatched marriage. You have to be careful. Remember, more important than any relationship you have, the most important relationship you have is with the Father. That's why verse 18 says, and I will be a father to you, and you will be sons and daughters to me, says the Lord Almighty. The most important relationship you have is always with him, not with a husband or wife even. When we receive him, he welcomes us. What John 1 says is we become children of God. And, and we have become the children of the one who is what this verse tells us is the Lord Almighty. He's only called that twice in the New Testament, once in Revelation and here. It's talking about his all-ruling and all-powerful control. He's the master. So if God is your father and you are his sons, then you should only marry one of his daughters why? Because he is the master. He's the master of life. He's the master of marriage. He's the master of you. And because we value our relationship with him so much, we see that he's not out to make us miserable, but to protect us. He doesn't want us to get married and have that spiritual mismatch because he knows that will take us away from him. Find your fulfillment 
in him alone. Whatever your circumstance, married or unmarried, find your fulfillment in him alone. Like Proverbs 27, 7, it says this, a sated man loathes honey, but a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. But to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. A sated man, a man who's satisfied, a man who's eaten and he's full. We, don't, we all know what that's like, right? You get full and you, you just can't eat another bite. You know, this past week we were at, a, the guys on staff were at a conference and we went to my favorite chain restaurant, Texas Roadhouse. And man, I love their food. I love their tea. I love their rolls. I love their salad. I love their steak. I love their potatoes. I love anything they serve. It's, it's like, oh. And I ate until I was full. I ate until I couldn't eat another bite. Monday night, I was full. Didn't want anything. Not any, even anything that might have tasted good to me. That's what this verse is saying. A sated man, a satisfied man, he loathes honey. Honey. I like honey too. But the guy who's satisfied, the guy who's full, he's not looking for anything. Even the things he likes, even the things he would normally like, he doesn't want another bite. But to a famished man, any bitter thing is sweet. See what he's saying? If your deepest needs are filled by Christ, you won't go looking for something else to fill it. On the other hand, if you slip away from your relationship with God, you'll become so hungry that you may even think something that's bitter is better than nothing. You'll take anything. Don't make that mistake. Verse 1 of chapter 7 says, Therefore, having these promises that God's going to be our Father, He's going to, you know, it's going to be great. Having these promises, beloved, let us cleanse ourselves from all defilement of flesh and spirit, perfecting holiness in the fear of God. See, we know these things. Guess what? It's time to make sure we're on track spiritually. It's time to revere God more than any relationship we have. The phrase says, let us. This is our responsibility. We have to work at getting back to what we know is true. We have this high privilege as sons and daughters of the Heavenly Father, and now we have to act accordingly. So here's the deal. If you're, not, if you're going to get married, marry the strongest Christian you can find and be the strongest Christian you can be for your spouse. Don't just go with the easy answer. I've talked too many times to too many young people who are, who are saying, and I ask, so is this person a Christian? Yeah, yeah, they say they're a Christian. They go to church? Yes, some. You know, I, I, I sort of, had to encourage him to come to church and, you know, they'll, he'll come with me or she'll come with me. It's not what we're looking for. We're looking for someone, find someone who is pursuing God. Ask some tough questions. Are they committed to God's word? Which means they're going to listen to it. They're going to hear it. They're going to be in it themselves. They're going to be studying. They're going to be reading it. And not only that, if they're committed to God's word, they're going to be trying to do it. They're not just hearers only. They're also doers of it. 
Are they committed to God's word? Are they involved in serving? They see needs around. They know there's opportunities. They get involved. Are they serving? Do they have a personal time of prayer? Do, do they, if they don't have a personal time of prayer, you know why? That's, that's because they don't recognize that their needs can be met only in him. You're looking for someone who goes to him with all the struggles of life, when they're going through the deserts of life, when they're going through the pain of life, when they, when they recognize they have a need, when they recognize that God has blessed them and they're wanting to thank him for that. You're looking for someone who has that kind of communication with God. Do they have a habit of daily and weekly worship? Weekly worship, that means when we, like when we come together corporately, do they, do they, are they in a habit of being there and being a part of what God's people are doing? And do they have a daily worship themselves that they are in? They're living a life of worship, recognizing and honoring God through the things they do and the things they say. Are they in a regular routine of caring? When they see people who are hurting and struggling, do they not only, are they not only moved by that emotionally, but they actually take action and do something about it? Are they in the routine of caring? And do they care enough about lost people to tell them about Jesus? Wait for someone like that. It may not be easy to find that person, but it's better, it, it's better to have no one than to have the wrong one. Let me close with some action steps here things to do, okay? First of all, if you're single, resolve right now to only marry a believer who loves Jesus, which might mean that you need to take the bold but necessary step of ending the relationship that you're in now. But if you're single, make that commitment. John Piper says it this way, if the choice of a marriage partner still lies before you, settle in your own mind right now to marry never to marry anyone who does not love the Lord Jesus with all his or her heart. Number two, encourage someone who is in a spiritually mismatched marriage. Maybe they came to Christ after they were married and they're married to an unbeliever. They need encouragement. Maybe they didn't. Maybe they, as a Christian, married something. It's not... We're not sitting back now going, oh, shame on you for doing that. No. What we should be doing is coming to them and saying, what can I do for you? What do you need? How can I help you? How can I pray for you? I'm praying for you. I know it's not easy. I know the, the burden of your heart is for that, your spouse to come to know Jesus. What can I do to help you with that? Number three. Pray for our singles. You're part of our church family. Pray for our singles to stay pure and to wait for the right person. Pray for them to have the wisdom to know who that person is. Number four, if you're a parent, take the lead. Take the lead. Lead your kids to only date believers. If they're young, set the tone now. Start telling them now what the expectation is in your home.
let them know and learn to respect you enough at this age so that when they're making that decision, they will listen to what you have to say. It is the second biggest decision you'll ever make in life. Let's get it right. Let's honor God in it. Let's stand and we'll close in prayer. And Father, we do pray, God, for uh, individuals in our church family, uh, believers, God, who may be married to someone who's not. And I ask, God, that you give them strength today and that they'd be encouraged today. They'd realize that they are impacting their home. God, touch their spouse. I uh, pray that they would come to know you, that their heart and mind would be open the, to the truth, that they would respond by faith. Save them, Father. And for those who are here that are single, God, I pray that you give them wisdom and direction. Father, I pray that they would remain pure and, and wait, God, just and then they, they would know at that right time. God, for those who are single that will remain single, Father, give them strength to, to accomplish all that you've got for them. What a privilege they have. Thank you for allowing uh, our church to have people uh, who are in that position in life here because God, they can serve you so, so incredibly. And God, for all of us in our homes, may we honor you. As parents, give us wisdom, give us direction. God, as, as husbands and wives, help us to do what you've called us to do. We want to do what's right, Father, because it's what's right. We want to honor you in our homes. Thank you for loving us today. Thank you for a beautiful day outside. God, I pray that you just bless us as we remain faithful to you today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.